Corinthians 15, I was thinking about it this morning. The Apostle Paul said the good news, the gospel, we call it. The Greek words euangelion, it's where we literally transliterate the letters euangelion into English and we get evangelism, evangelical. That's where the word comes from. But the word essentially meant good news. Um, and not only did it mean good news, but embedded in the word that Paul used, euangelion, it implied proclamation, um, which seemingly would be understood if something is good news. Uh, it seems intimated by the fact that it's good news that it needs to be shared. It's new and it's good. One of the things we've spent a lot of time around here the last 15, 16 years, this church, and I don't know that we could fully understand the breadth of how much of a laboratory we've been for a reform movement that's happening in Christianity, uh, a reform movement that uh, has many names, but we've kind of settled, most of us that are leading this movement, on a post-evangelical, progressive iteration of Christianity. Um, and by post-evangelical, many of us in this movement matriculate from evangelical backgrounds, Baptist, Church of Christ, Nazarene, Assembly of God, Pentecostal, uh, even conservative Presbyterian. A lot of people in this room come from those backgrounds. By progressive, we're, we're, we're totally uh, invested, and one of the things I like about the architecture of this place is the mix of tradition and new and modern, because we deeply believe, those of us that are in this movement, leading this movement, that, that progressive is not anti-tradition. Um, progressive actually, by our estimation, is at the heart of the tradition of Christianity. We believe that Jesus was himself a progressive. We believe our earliest theologians, like Paul, were progressive uh, at heart. And we believe that Jesus, as he was leaving this world, even set us up for the idea of a developing progressive understanding of existential matters like God and life. And he told his disciples uh, on the eve of his crucifixion, he said, I have so much to tell you but you can't bear it now. And embedded in that statement is the heart of progressive revelation, progressive thought, that as human consciousness grows, I mean, Jesus didn't say, I have a lot to tell you, but I don't want to hold out on you right now and just kind of play cat and mouse with you, and eventually I'll download it all. That's not the point. The point, Jesus explained, was that they did not have consciousness and capacity to receive it. Um, my 20-year-old's here. I also have a 13-year-old, and... I know there are things that I can say to him that I can't say to her. It's not because they're not true, but it's because a 13-year-old has a different capacity than a 20-year-old. And Jesus told his disciples, there's so much I would say to you, but you can't bear it now. And nowhere in that text is there an asterisk at the base of that text that says, but this will finally be completed by the end of the first century, or by the death of the last apostle, or somewhere between the 5th and 7th century when the church finally gets the doctrinal creeds figured out. But if church history tells us anything, it is that this progressive unfolding of truth, this reality that even Scripture, all truth is almost like a time-release medicine that releases itself as the body has capacity to receive it. And Jesus said, I want to tell you these things, but as your consciousness grows, the Holy Spirit will feed them to you. And if church history tells us anything, it tells us that that process is still ongoing. 
it started in our earliest days with the Gentile inclusion. I mean, when the Holy Spirit fell, if the Holy Spirit was going to download everything immediately, um, well, that idea is immediately betrayed in Scripture because when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples for at least the first months, and it could have even been as much as a couple of years, for those first couple of years, uh, they did not believe that Gentile people even had access to the gospel. 99%, we talk about inclusion around here a lot for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, but in the earliest days of the church, 99.9% .9 of the world was excluded from even being able to accept the gospel unless they changed their natural way of being in the world, their, their, the way they were birthed into the world. If they changed that and accepted Judaism and became a Jew, then they would have access to the gospel. The church wrestled through that. They argued it through. When Peter first opened the door to the Gentile people at Cornelius' household in Acts 10, this is very interesting because many, many times when I look back at the inclusion process for our church, there's a million things that I kind of pick myself apart and our leadership apart and say, I wish we would have done this or that. It was such an imperfect time and an imperfect process. But uh, I, I was comforted the other day that when, when God spoke to Peter and said, you should share the gospel with these people. Even though they were not born Jewish, even though they are Gentile, you should share the gospel with them. Peter did not go to Jerusalem and get permission from the church or the elders. He shared the gospel and then showed himself a submitted person to the polity by after sharing the gospel, he then went, put himself before the elders, including James, the brother of Jesus, and when Peter sat before him and told him what he had done, that he had shared the gospel, extended the church to this group of people. Now, this is the brother of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead and guide you into all truth. If that would have been an immediate process, then James would have already understood this. But he had been walking full of the Holy Spirit for a year, perhaps more. James looked at Peter just because Peter preached and shared the gospel with people like us, Gentile people. James looked at him and said, you not only should not have baptized them, you shouldn't have even eaten with them. Peter sympathetic because now James is arguing with him. Well, when he heard that word from God in Acts 10 that he should go and share the gospel, Peter himself argued with God about the matter. Anybody ever argued with God? Peter argued with God, explaining to God why he couldn't do what God was telling him to do. And you know why he explained? He explained on the grounds of Scripture. Can you imagine? Peter was giving God a Bible study. And God surely had to say something like, Hey, buddy, do you know who you're talking to here? Peter's sympathetic, and he looks at James and says, I get it. You're arguing with me, I argue with God. And then Peter said, but I, can I tell you a story? And this is the history of the progressive unfolding of truth. Generally, the needle doesn't move on theory, abstraction, esoteric theology, science, doctrinaire talk, debate. That's it. The needle seldom moves there. But as Peter got away from arguing text and just said, I was there, I shared the gospel, the normal means of sharing the gospel was that after people believed, you would immediately water baptize them. And Peter wouldn't baptize these people. 
after water baptism, often in the book of Acts in those early days, there would be this spirit fall. There would be a, a Holy Spirit infusion. In Acts 2, they even spoke in foreign languages. And in Acts 10, as Peter's sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls, and Peter watches these spirit people experience the same thing that he and the Jewish people experienced in the beginning. He turned and he looked, and the Greek syntax is really great here. He looked at the people who were with him, and marveling that God would give access to the gospel to this group of people, he looked at the people with him and he said, can we continue to forbid them water that they might be baptized? That, think about that language. Think about the church. Think about the forbidding that we've done. From the very beginning, before queer kids and women and divorcees and people of color, long before matters of chattel slavery, long before we were burning Copernicus and Galileo or threatening to burn them at the stake for believing in a heliocentric universe, long before all of that, right out of the chute, we were forbidding people the water of baptism. Why? What had they done? Nothing. They had just been born wrong by our estimation, not born right. For the men, it's interesting, for the men, what they would have had to do in their conversion um, to be able to receive the gospel and become Jewish, they would have had to be circumcised. Isn't that amazing? It seems like it always revolves something around the shorts or the genitalia. I don't know what it is. It's, we carry so much shame in our bodies and our sexuality. It always comes back to that. Peter said, can I tell you a story? And he told a story. And after he told the story of how the Spirit fell, how he himself marveled and looked at those who were with him and said, you know what? We're forbidding people our religious waters. God just gave them heavenly waters. How do we forbid this? The Bible said as he got all the way through the story, again, not parsing the text, not breaking down original languages, the elders hearing the story of inclusion, the elders leaned back in their chair, and maybe it was James, the brother of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, said, how do we argue this? And the history of the church is a long history of existential, or just life, human beings, having experiences that build up over time and accumulate and ultimately, those experiences build up into a memorial of sorts that stand dissonant to and seeming contradiction to our received dogma. And, and we're left in this tension. This is the progressive bent of the church. We're always left, just like they were left sitting there at the table with Peter. We're left in this tension of what we're experiencing humanly, incarnationally, as Parker Palmer said, it's amazing that a religion so vested in the idea of incarnation gets so often lost in disembodied concepts. But the real movements that happen in the Christian church happen when we look up from the text into the face of Jesus, into the face of Christ. We quit burying our head in a book. It's amazing. This area isn't called the God belt. It ain't called the Jesus belt. It's called the but when we get out of our bibliolatry and look up into the face of Christ, at judgment, Jesus has already told us, he's already given us the answers in the back of the book. He said, I'm not going to talk about how you were baptized. I'm not going to talk about your 
eschatology or how you see the millennial reign. I, he said, I'm going to say I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner, sick. And we're going to say, when did we ever see you like that? And Jesus is going to say, every human you ever saw was me. This is the Christ. I mean, it's amazing that's already been told us. Incarnation stories drive us back to the text. And, and, and the church forever. So I'm kind of, I'm not, this is not a mea culpa and it's not a magnum opus. This is just me on this first Sunday in this place just reminding us as we move into new digs and as we progress forward at the heart of this place, it's not just new pastors and new places. At the heart of this place, this is a new faith that is ever new, always new, always bringing us new. Peter told the story, and there they stood, setting a precedent for where we would always be in the tension. I was driving home from Little Rock yesterday, left a conference. I was there... In, at Open Door Community Church with Peggy Campolo and others. That's the church that in 2004, 11 years before I married you guys, 11 years before inclusion, that wide-hearted pastor, Randy McCain, a gate assembly of God kid who sat on the front row of his church, Antonio, it's the story I told when you cried out a few years ago. Assembly of God kid sits on the front row of his church Always the first kid in the altar, best kid in the church. And finally, the pastor decides to preach on homosexuality. And at 13 years old, Craig, that kid, to his horror, finds out who he is. And he finds out in one fell swoop in the church that he's going to hell. He said, I remember one night as the preacher, the last part of the series, he was reading through Romans 1. And he was coming to that, you know, that coup de grace of Romans 1.27 that that clobber text, and he said, I was sitting there 13 years old, shaking, trembling, because I knew. But he said the longer he read in that text, who when they knew God, glorified him not as God, but they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They worshiped, they worshiped idols, and they hated God, they despised others, and they were greedy and selfish and abased. And he said, 13 years old, the longer he read, he said, I thought to myself, I don't know who he's talking about, but he's not talking about me. <sighs> New. 2004, that white-hearted guy, he and his husband had me come, and I sat in that church, and I felt the move of God's Spirit. They even let me preach, and they knew they were ministering to me far more than I was ministering to them. And I left that place. Last night, driving back home from that place, being over there this weekend, just reminded me of the tension I set in in that car between a received dogma and an experience, a human incarnational experience. Well, there are three choices that your church always has to make in that moment. And the choices are you can reject the human experience. You can reject the human experience and say, I'm going to dismiss what I feel in my body. I'm going to dismiss what I experienced in this relationship. I'm going to dismiss what I experienced in that church that weekend. I'm going to dis dismiss it. Act like it didn't happen. Ignore it. Or 
I'm going to dismiss the text. I'm going to give up on my Christianity. I'm going to say, you know, this experience obviously overrules the text, and I'm going to jettison the text, and I'm going to move past all of this and just move on with life. Or you do the mature thing. You do what the church has done for 2,000 years. You allow the experience, you allow the experience of Christ in creative form. You allow the experience to drive you back to the text, asking yourself the question, did we read this right? Have we read this fully and faithfully? And over and over and again, those experiences have driven us back to the text, and we have found that there is a more faithful reading of the text. We have had epiphanies that, that open our heart in ways that maybe our heart wasn't ready before. I mean, God didn't change God's mind on chattel slavery between the 13th and 19th century. I mean, chattel slavery for Caucasian people, European people, it developed after the 13th century because until the 13th century, we were enslaving one another. Finally, somebody realized that we really shouldn't enslave other Christians. And so we started going to Arabia and Africa to get our slaves there because these people weren't Christians. Another 500 years. Was God changing God's mind? Was the biblical text changing? No. But human experience wallows out a capacity in our mind. Our quotient grows over time. And the Holy Spirit has the ability to say things that perhaps it could not say before because we weren't ready. It's only been in the last 50 years that the evangelical church has begun to allow women in abusive, horrifically abusive relationships to leave those marriages. Because the biblical text is clear. Matthew 19, Jesus said there's one reason for divorce, and that's sexual infidelity. And yet the more we read the text, the clearer it became that the text wasn't clear. But what was clear? I mean, I grew up in the church where Sister Thelma would just get the crap beat out of her, and she would come to church and testify about her lost husband. We somehow lauded her. I mean, Christ was crucified to save us, so why wouldn't we be crucified to save? But in the last 50 years, the evangelical churches looked at a text, and they've said, we do not know how to interpret this now in the face of this new evidence. This, and it's not even new evidence. Women have been abused for years, but again and again and again, these kinds of situations drive us back, and that is the heart of progressivism. But I want to tell you, at the heart of progressivism, one of the things as I travel around and I'm visiting with these new churches that are springing up everywhere, a youthful way of doing progressivism is you get progressive inertia and you just feel like everything needs to be taken apart, put back together differently, and you try to change everything. I'm going to tell you something really beautiful that I found the last 15 years here. There are parts of Christianity that after I have taken them apart, dissembled them, the most progressive thing I could do was to put them back together and put them on the shelf and look at them and say, that still works. There's still beauty there, and it doesn't need changed. So progressivism isn't changing things for the sake of changing things. As a matter of fact, again, what I love about the beauty of the tradition of this place is it reminds us there are still some bricks in the wall that really work for us. And this morning, as I was thinking about you guys and thinking about my journey here 15 years and thinking about these new beginnings, I thought about Paul's word when he said, you know, the gospel is that Christ died and was buried and was resurrected, and then he was seen. And I thought to myself this morning as I was driving over here, 
There's nothing about that that needs changed. As a matter of fact, that gospel plays itself out in my life over and over and over again. Christ was born, Christ died, he, buried, he was buried, he rose, and then he was seen. And I thought in my own life, the gospel, you claim your birth. Christ was called a root out of dry ground. He came as one not really expected at the time. Our birth surprises. us. I think about Joseph sitting there looking at Mary. She's, she's found out that she's pregnant and Joseph is destroyed because Joseph knows infidelity when he sees it. He knows heartbreak when he sees it. Surprise, Joseph. Not only is this not the worst thing that's ever happened to you, this is actually the best thing that's ever happened to you. Sometimes our births surprise us. Sometimes those roots come out of dry ground like tender shoots. Sometimes, Joseph, the thing that looks like the greatest curse of your life is actually God. Because sometimes kings come dressed like paupers and sometimes angels come to us unaware. Sometimes blessings are wrapped in curses. Sometimes, Joseph, God doesn't wear God's uniform. We claim our births. We live our lives. And the gospel said that, that in that good news is even death. And we, we submit to the little deaths along the way. But I'm reminded, the gospel reminds me that this is a paschal cycle of birth, surprising births and beautiful lives. And, and then there's this death that, there's this death that can be paschalized, gospelized. There's a difference between terminal hopeless death and paschal death. Paschal death is what Jesus was talking about when he said, if a seed falls into the ground and has a paschal death, it doesn't abide alone. It will bring forth much fruit. Paschal death is fecund, fertile death that is invested with the seeds of tomorrow. And, and if you submit to it and if you give yourself to it, even those paschal deaths that you find the most uncomfortable if you submit to them in their paschal nature. They are blessed and replete with the promise of a better day. But we don't skip. The gospel reminds me that we don't skip from the death. Paul's iteration of the gospel says you don't skip from the death to the resurrection. But he said the good news is that he was buried. Part of the paschalness of life is that not only do we experience paschal deaths, but a big part of life is not skipping too quick to the resurrection, but tending to the burials. Isn't it lovely that the first people who met the resurrected Christ weren't there because they had great faith in a resurrection? They didn't have any faith in a resurrection. Do you remember who it was? It was the women. Do you remember what they were doing? They were tending to the burial. Sometimes Jason, just putting the resurrection off a little while and saying that will come when it comes, but for now... This was beautiful and it deserves to be tended to. And in tending to the burial properly, resurrections come. Gosh, and then it's even fuller than that because after the resurrection he was seen, he gave them 40 days of this new life adjustment where he was kind of like he used to be and not exactly like he used to be. He portended what he was going to be. It was somewhere between Pentecost and the Spirit and the old Jesus that walked around. <laughs> Welcome to Clementine. Um, where was I? <laughs> we adjust to, and this church is there. 
after he resurrected, he had gave them 40 days where he was seen. We adjust to new realities, somewhere between the old and the new. And the story I'm telling isn't just a 2,000-year-old story or the story of this church. It's the story of your job and your marriage and your divorce and your health. And it's the story of, it's the story of life. It's spring and summer and fall and winter. And after adjusting a little while, then he takes them out to a mountain and they do what we all want to do with Jesus. They start worshiping him. And as they start worshiping him, they're really worshiping. Worshiping him means putting him in a box the way you want him so you can control it and everything can be, you know, tidy and certain. And as they're worshiping him, he starts floating away, the story says. Isn't this something? You'd think the guy, if he wants to be worshipped, would kind of move into it. Instead, he's like, eh, and he floats away. And the Bible said as he was floating away, he blessed them. He blessed them in the leaving. That's paschal death. That's paschal loss. It blesses you even when it's leaving. And the angels are looking at them. They're like, come back, come back, and they're worshiping him. And the angels, are, the angels don't even call it worship. The angels look at them and say, what are you doing gazing into a hole in the sky? Go to Jerusalem. Go become Christ. Go be filled with the spirit that raised him from the dead. You be the body of Christ. That's the Paschal cycle. All right. Before Nathaniel comes, I want to read you this. This was Friday. Thursday was National Coming Out Day. I received a message yesterday afternoon from the father of a transgender teen. <laughs> That's, we're more Pentecostal in the back for those that are wondering. <laughs> for those that want a, a less traditional service, you can go back there and uh, there's aisle running, uh, no snakes, but there's tongues and interpretation, all that back there. <laughs> Received a message yesterday afternoon from the father of a transgender teen. Frankly, the fact that the note was from a father is quite special in its own right because 98% of these kinds of messages come from moms. Probably, honestly, four to six hours of my day now is just this Facebook world of people who don't have churches like this in rural parts of America, Mike, where we grew up. That, that, I mean, where are they going to go? So they go to me on Facebook, and they pour their heart out. The dad told me that his sister is a mama bear and had recently recommended to him that he follow my Facebook post. He's been doing that now for the past four months. The story behind the story is that this father and his wife have known almost from their youngest child's birth that this child was different, was special. Born 13 years before, identifiably as a boy, their kid quickly made it clear that they were not to be physiologically typecast. Now 13, the reality is plain, though it has never been spoken. To that end, this is what the father said to me. I mean, think about this through... Paschalness. After reading your post and hundreds of comments from people like my sister and the mama bears, National Coming Out Day slapped me in the face. Though my wife and I have for a long time internally committed to the full support of our child whenever they were ready to come out, yesterday something changed in my heart and mind. It finally dawned on me that we are the parents, the adults. I am dad. And I didn't need to wait for my child to come out. Instead, I needed to go in. So I made National Coming Out Day National Going In Day. 
While the rest is too personal to tell, I will tell you this. At the end of our conversation, I wrapped my over six feet, 200 pound frame around their barely 90 pound frame. And, and the most important hug of my life. As I hugged them, I could feel a thousand pounds of suffering transfer from the, their little heart to mine, and I could feel a million more yet to come. After a bit, my wife came in and we told her about things, and she crawled onto the oversized beanbag where we were intertwined, and the three of us held onto one another for dear life. And we knew then and know now that we are ready together for whatever may come. I am so glad I went in come to find out they had been waiting on me. Later that night, he wrote another message to me. After Jay, and of course I changed the initial, I always changed some details and that detail, but he called the child's name. After Jay had been asleep for a while, I went and stood in their bedroom door and thought about new pronouns, new clothes, new conversations, new language. For a moment, I have to admit, as I looked at them lying there, I began to feel a bit overwhelmed with the new. The old felt safer. The past was comfortable. It was good, easy to idealize, I'm sure. And I thought about the uncertainty of the days ahead. And then just as I was deep in the middle of my future tripping, Jay rolled over and whispered, Daddy, what are you doing? I went over and sat on the bed beside them. I could see their face because of the same nightlight that had been lighting the room for 13 years. I smiled and said, just checking on you. As I sat beside them, I could tell they felt me. They understood me. After a bit of just quietly gazing into one another's eyes, Jay said, don't worry, Daddy, I'm still me. And it occurred to me that in the grand scheme of things, Changing a pronoun from he to they, from him to them, from his to theirs, doesn't really change much at all. Those were the same eyes. This was the same beautiful soul. And I realized that as uncertain as some things about our future may be, there is far more certainty than uncertainty. Saying they are still them instead of he is still him is just grammar, just words. I know there are changes ahead for sure, there always are, but I also know that everything good about what has been will go with us now. They are indeed still them, and I am still me, and we are still us. And everything good about what has been will go with us now. Here's to new beginnings, Grace Point. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads. Nathaniel will come and lead us through our taking of the Lord, receiving of the Lord's Supper and our giving. But as we move to this last eight or nine minutes of the service, we open our hearts to Paschal death and Paschal life. We open our hearts vocationally, familially, personally, emotionally in every way. We are grateful for new beginnings for Grace Point. We are grateful to be here this morning, sweet Christ. We are grateful that you are indeed always and ever making all things new. We pray these things 
and that name that still doesn't need changed, that name that cannot be progressed upon. In the sweet name of Christ, we pray. And God's people said,